This passage, the primary passage before us, 1 Timothy 2, 8 to 10, is a challenging one in many respects. I've entitled this message, Modesty, a Forgotten Virtue, Part 1. We'll consider Part 2 next week. But this passage before us has drawn pastors and churches and ministries into great conflict throughout the years. In fact, John Chrysostom, some of you may have heard of him, he was considered the golden-tongued bishop or pastor in Constantinople in the early church, regarded as the greatest preacher of his day. Until, that is, he began to preach on a passage like this. And after he did that, the empress Eudoxia ran him out of town and he died in exile. Because as he preached about modesty especially, she would have none of it because Eudoxia, she didn't believe in modesty. She didn't want to be told to control herself and stop her ostentation. And she certainly didn't want to be told that she, along with other women, especially if they proclaim or profess Christ, should have a sense of propriety about them and consider their external mode of dress and presenting themselves. And since this passage and others like it, because there are several in the scriptures, have caused great consternation to many in the past, as well as a great deal of division amongst churches, it's resulted in the fact that many churches and Christians just don't want to talk about it. They kind of push it to the side. But we remind ourselves that we do need to consider the whole counsel of God, and as we continue in our series on worldliness, this is certainly a valid topic for consideration. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, in no uncertain terms about it, as well as the Apostle Peter writing about it. And because, though, we want to be careful and clear, we'll consider this topic of modesty, a forgotten virtue, in two different parts. The first part will emphasize the biblical text and see a bit of a timeline throughout the scriptures of what it says, first of all, about what modesty is, but also its emphasis not on the external, but on the heart behind this virtue. And then in the second part, we'll emphasize the principles from these passages and apply them more specifically to ourselves and our own current situation. So let's begin today by considering the whole sweep of biblical history and what it has to say on it. But I do need to give a warning. Before I lose them completely, I want to say a brief word to the men. Don't tune out what's about to be said, because it's a tendency for men to think that this topic has nothing to do with them. But as we'll soon find out, the Bible does say a few very pointed things to men on this issue. In fact, not only does this topic apply to men just as well as it applies to women, but the majority of the reason, I would argue, that this topic of modesty is so necessary to be addressed in this day and age is because men, especially Christian men, have failed in their duty and have abdicated their responsibility on this and other matters, as we will see clearly over the next two weeks. So men and women, old and young, all of us have something to learn from what the Bible says on this important topic and all the other topics that attach to it. And in order to look through the whole sweep of history, what we'll do is we'll travel a great distance this morning, from the Garden of Eden with the first man and woman and what God has said to them, then to a wonderful woman in the ancient world some 3,000 years ago, before winding up in 1 Timothy chapter 2 at a Roman church in the city of Ephesus. Let's first begin by trying to understand the text. You can turn there if you'd like, Genesis chapter 1 to 3, specifically chapter 3, verse 21. What we're told is that when God, the first tailor, if you will, 
covered the nakedness of Adam and Eve. He covered the majority of their body, their torso. We know this from the word that was used for clothing in that particular passage, Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, and it's used many other times in the Old Testament as well. What this tells us, just as a beginning observation, is that when God created clothing for Adam and Eve after their sin, he didn't just give them a couple strips of cloth. They weren't running around with loincloths. They had a significant covering that he gave them from animal skins. And as he clothed them with these animal skins in response to their shame, we might ask, what was the shame? Because prior to sin, they were naked in the garden, and the Bible says they had no guilt or shame about that. There was no issue there. But as soon as sin enters in, shame accompanies that. But what exactly are we to understand by that shame and, and how God covered that up up to a point with this clothing that he provided for them? And what we find is, among other explanations, one facet is this. When sin enters into the world, it causes us, among other things, to not look at our fellow human being, first and foremost, as a person with unique and intense value and worth who is created in the image of God. Rather, because of our sin and our selfish inclinations now, we too often look at our fellow human being as an object to be used or abused according to our whims and our selfish desires. And proper clothing has many facets, but one of those is to direct people, so to speak, to our personhood, to our faces, and to foster personal relationship. Clothing, then, has a moral, not just a practical purpose. A good question for dress, then, is whether or not what you're wearing and the way you present yourself on the outside has a personal effect, that is, it, it personifies you or causes people to see you as a person, or it objectifies you and your body. And so the question that arises from this is, are my clothes or is my external consistent with the creative purpose for which God created clothing in the first place? That's the beginning. But then we move on to Proverbs chapter 7. In verse 10, and we're told about a young man who was wandering around, he was unwise, he was foolish, and he was opening himself up to the sin of the world. And it says, there was a woman who met him, and she had on the attire, or the clothing, the externals of a harlot or a prostitute, and a crafty heart. Let's consider those two phrases. The first phrase, the attire of a harlot or a prostitute, is interesting. The Bible, both here and elsewhere, specifically calls attention to the way, in this case, that an immoral woman dresses. Why? Why does it call our attention to that? Because that is one of the main ways in which men are often tempted. Now think about it. The Bible, if you've read through the entire Bible, you'll know that it never talks once about how an immoral man dresses. Why is that? It's not because there are no immoral men. Far from it. Nor is it because immoral men are incapable of dressing in an immoral way. Anyone who has any sense and looks around in our society today knows that that's not the case. But why? Well, because for many women, sight is not the major avenue of temptation for them. But for men, it's a different story. The vast majority of men are far more tempted, first and foremost, by what they see as opposed to other things. This is not to say that women never struggle visually. Some do. We're just talking in generalities here. Some clear objective studies that have been done recently, especially because of the pervasive influence of widespread pornography in the last several decades, 
It shows very clearly that the number of women who identify as primarily visually stimulated has more than doubled in recent years. This visual has always been part of the equation for women, even more so today. It's not exclusive to men. That's the first thing to see. But secondly, consider the second phrase. He speaks about the externals, but notice that he also emphasizes the crafty heart behind the external. The woman's dress and demeanor in this particular passage was an outgrowth of her heart. And if you miss that clear consideration, which the next few passages will also mention, you will completely misunderstand and misapply this important topic and virtue of modesty. Now let's look at the alternate example of a positive example of modesty, Proverbs 31. The Bible never teaches, by the way, that a woman cannot be attractive or that a Christian woman or a God-fearing woman must, by definition, be unattractive. Far from it. The Bible clearly celebrates the beauty that is womanhood. It extols it. In fact, the first poetry ever spoken in the history of the world was spoken by Adam, the first man, when he saw the first woman, and he breaks out in a poetic song in Genesis 1 to 3. That alone bears much more consideration than we often give that passage. But what we want to note is that in Proverbs 31, the virtuous wife, the virtuous woman of that passage, who is extolled and praised over and over again, we find several interesting truths about her. First of all, in verses 17 and 22, it tells us that she is both physically fit and well-dressed. This tells us a few things. First of all, it's not wrong to consider your appearance. It's not wrong to dress in a complimentary way. In fact, in verses 21 and 22 of that passage, it says, she is not afraid of snow for her household, including herself, for all of her household are clothed in scarlet. That is, that, that's a denotation of, of fine garments, fine clothing. And she makes her bed coverings for herself and her family, and her clothing is fine linen and purple. You see, she's both practical, dressing for the snow for her and her family, and complementary, using fine linen and purple. But what we're to see overall is not so much the external. That's not what the passage, if we could read it, in total, is talking about. It's talking about a virtuous woman, that is, a woman who has godly character first and foremost, and that then presents itself on the outside. That's the key. The heart is the cause of what comes on the outside. And so we already see and begin to see that this topic of modesty and propriety for a Christian is much more nuanced than many of us perhaps have ever considered. And now we reach 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. He says, I desire then, he addresses the men first, then the women, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. And likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Now, why was it necessary for Paul to write this? Of course, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but why? Why write this at this time to this group of people? Well, scholarship has revealed to us in studies of the ancient world, specifically Ephesus, to which Paul was writing, but really the whole Roman world, we know quite clearly that the Roman woman of first century Roman society was similar in many ways to the modern feminist. 
Her attitudes of sexual, sexual libertinism fueled by increasing availability of contraception and abortion, which was widespread in the Roman Empire, as well as a rebellion against any male leadership, and especially male leadership in the home, all these were similar to what we see around us today in our society. Even Jewish and pagan authors alike condemned much of this in their writings at the time, noting that women's clothing, what they chose to wear on the outside, could show her feelings on these subjects. You only had to look at a woman in the ancient world and see how she chose to dress to know what her feelings were on these issues. And frankly, that's quite the case today as well in many respects. And wives who were influenced, Christian wives in this case, Christian women, who were influenced by this feminism often traded the modest, many-layered garments called uh, the stola of the ancient world. They traded that for what was called the stoga, which was what the prostitutes would wear. It was a much more revealing sort of garment. And these new women commonly wore elaborate braided hairstyles that were adorned with ribbons and turtle shell combs and gold and pearls and silver pins. Unfortunately, this philosophy and dress affected not just the regular culture around them, but the Christians in the church as well. And in addition to this, Ephesus, where Timothy was pastoring, he was seeing two different types of women specifically in his congregation, or I should say uh, women from two different aspects of society. You see, in his society, uh, some of the converts at least would have been women who at some point had been courtesans or prostitutes at the temple of Diana or Aphrodite. In that society, that was looked on as an honorable occupation and practice. And so if a woman from that background uh, becomes a Christian all of a sudden, whereas perhaps in some societies such a woman would have been considered lower class or uh, as, as the bottom of the socioeconomic strata, in that society they were considered normal average middle class, something like that. But they had a particular look to them, a particular set of clothing, a particular set of adornment. And so, too, they had the upper class, which we find out would typically not be underdressed, but rather overdressed. They, too, would do their hairstyles in a different way, but a similarly ostentatious way. And so you had two groups of women who likely would have both been becoming Christians. They're in that church context. Some were overdressed. They would adorn themselves in one way. Some were a little bit underdressed and adorning themselves in a different way. These newly saved ladies, I'm sure, wanted to give honor to Jesus Christ who had saved them. And the best way they knew to give honor was to give it as they gave it to the goddess Diana. The best way they knew was to follow the cultural dictates that they saw as appropriate. But what they needed to know, and the reason under the Holy Spirit's inspiration Paul writes this to them, they need to, to know that the true and living God calls for something different calls for, in this case, modesty, which was by no means a Roman virtue in any way, shape, or form. It's a distinctly Christian virtue. So he says, in essence, he doesn't go right at them and say, what are you thinking, how dare you, etc. He, he corrects them gently. This is what God wants. This is how God wants you to look. Don't just go along with whatever the culture says. Don't go along with what the Roman Empire says. Rather, God calls you to be different. Here's how he calls you to be different. So follow his way. 
because the actions of these women specifically were sending the wrong message and they were damaging the reputation of the Christian community. And the context of 1 Timothy chapter 2 is interesting and very important. It's worship. Worship. Paul addresses our attitudes of worship, but also our externals. That both the internal and the external should show allegiance to our great God if we are Christians. He tells first the men, don't be clothed with anger, but with prayer. Lift up holy hands instead of throwing punches and arguing and vying for position and trying to see who can be the most macho in the room, which also was according to the, co- the common culture of the day. He says, don't follow that. Rather, follow this. And women, likewise, should not be clothed like the underdressed temple prostitutes or courtesans of the day, or according to the luxuriously overdressed gaudy elites of society in that day, but instead in modest and respectable clothing and adornment. But don't misunderstand here. This passage is not saying that only women need to be modest, any more than it's saying only men need to control their anger. Rather, it's pointing out areas in which men often struggle more than others and in which women often struggle according to the dictates of society and culture. For instance, this passage is certainly not suggesting that if an angry woman comes into church and starts throwing punches, that that's perfectly acceptable and we should turn the other way because, thank goodness, it's not a man throwing punches. No, that's not what it's saying at all. The point is that while men are to pray and worship without argumentation and vying for power, women, Christian women, are to pray and worship without ostentation and just drawing attention to the externals. However, the instructions about both anger and modesty are applied to both genders at different points in the scripture. But Paul here is addressing fashion specifically to the women because these struggles are more often seen as a general rule in that gender than in the male gender. And I have to belabor this point, forgive me for doing so, but I must do it because without this proper understanding, very bad applications are made from this passage. And many unhelpful mentalities grow rampant. If we had time, I could point you to book after book, commentary after commentary, sermon after sermon that I have looked at, heard, or been in the audience of as it was given live, that I'm sure were well-intentioned, but completely missed the point. And either goes off into legalism or licentiousness because they have not understand this very basic truth. But what exactly should we take away from this passage? If that's why it needed to be written in the first place, what should we take from it? What exactly does it mean? Well, Paul encourages these women to dress in a way that's in keeping with their Christian character. And he uses three Greek words in order to help them understand what a godly dress or adornment looks like. And these words are important. They're respectable, modest, and self-controlled. By the way, the reason we are using the ESV rendering of this instead of the normal NIV that we typically use is because the NIV switches around the original word order in quite an unhelpful way. Paul has a seemingly a a reason for why he gave the word order choice that he did, and so we want to follow that as close to the original as we possibly can. So in the NIV, it starts with modest, and then it goes to the other two. But actually, in the original, it starts with respectable, Then it goes on to modesty and self-control. And respectable is the first one that's important to deal with. By the way, these terms overlap. They're not completely unique, but they're important. They overlap. And we're going to consider just the first of them, 
for a couple moments. The Greek word, cosmois, means that something is respectable, something that's orderly, well-arranged, or decent. And Paul's primary concern is that this clothing and external adornment is becoming, that is, it's congruous with or fitting to and consistent with their Christian character as a child of God. Respectable in this context means, on God's terms, that it makes it easier, rather than harder, for others to give them respect. So the question is, for these women, is what they're wearing and how they're presenting themselves on the outside, is it becoming or unbecoming? Respectable or the opposite? And this word challenges us to bring a cosmic perspective to bear on our cosmetic decisions. According to Paul, godly women adopt an entirely different approach towards clothing than women who don't know Jesus Christ. They dress in a way that's keeping with their Christian character and thereby make the gospel attractive to the world. Our Lord wants his girls to be stunningly beautiful, and the Bible extols the glory and beauty of women. But he also repeatedly stresses that a woman's beauty and her beautification is something that begins not on the outside, but on the inside first and foremost. The heart is where we put on Christ and his clothing. Don't miss this, for it's the most important point we are considering this morning. It's the inside that has to be clothed first for a godly woman. What do we mean by that? A godly woman, what we mean is this. She is far more concerned and ought to be far more concerned with her spiritual reality on the inside than her physical appearance. doesn't mean she completely ignores the physical appearance, but that the internal takes precedent. Why? Because the righteousness of Christ is the clothing that she puts on above all others, Romans 13, 14. This is for all Christians. All of us are to be considering what are we to be clothed in first and foremost? Throughout the New Testament scriptures, we're told, be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Put on the righteous garments of Christ. What is that saying? It's talking about the goodness, the virtue, the morality, the righteousness of Jesus that we get when we repent of our sins and trust in him for our salvation. He clothes us in his righteousness. That's where it must start. There can be no change, no true change of the external without a change of the internal. And so we have to emphasize that first and foremost. Has there been an internal change? And once there's an internal change, because God has saved a person, he gives that person a new worldview, new values, a new way to live, new guideposts through his word, the Holy Spirit's guidance, etc. And that will inevitably show itself on the outside. John MacArthur helpfully clarifies what it means to have respectable clothing from this passage. He says this, Women are to come to the corporate worship ready to face the Lord. They must not come in slovenly disarray or personal display because of an unbecoming wardrobe or demeanor. There is a place for lovely clothes that reflect the humble grace of a godly woman as evidenced in Proverbs 31. But proper adornment on the outside reflects a properly adorned heart first and foremost. And this is the challenge of inner modesty. The question you see for a Christian woman is not to adorn myself or not to adorn myself. The question is rather, do I adorn myself in the way God commands or in some other way? 1 Peter 3, verses 3 to 4 is helpful here. He says, do not let your adorning to Christian women be external, the braiding of the hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning 
be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. What's he saying here? He's saying, in a sense, dress your heart before you dress your body. Consider the internal before you consider the external. And just on a a general surface level, we have all had this experience, no doubt. Speaking to someone in our society who looks completely put together. They have impeccable fashion sense. They are dressed to the nines. They look great. Everything seems put together. They seem to be a beautiful or respectable or debonair individual. And you speak to them. And as soon as they open their mouth, you realize there's no substance inside. They're as shallow as shallow can be. Not an original thought in their mind, not a true feeling in their heart. They're bankrupt inside. They look great on the outside, yes. They have all the flashy jewelry and the flashy car and the nice clothes or whatever it is, but they're devoid of substance. And what Paul and Peter and the other New Testament authors and the Old Testament authors are getting at is for the Christian, the God-fearing one, we address the inside first. It doesn't mean we ignore the outside, but we have to start internally. John Calvin said this almost 500 years years ago about modesty of clothing. He said, we must always begin with a person's heart attitude. For where corruption reigns within, there will be no self-control. And where desire for attention reigns within, there will be little or no modesty in the outward dress. And he's exactly right. Because your external actions flow from your internal heart. Just as the negative clothing in Proverbs 7 came from the heart of that crafty woman in that context, so too all clothing or outward adornment for good or ill is ultimately linked to our heart. That's the ultimate source. Your wardrobe, in other words, is a public statement of your personal and private motivation. That's not how we normally think about our wardrobe choices. We don't normally go into our closets, look at our our clothing there in the drawer and in the closet hanging up and say, all right, if I put this on, what does this say about my personal and private motivation? What does this dress or this short or this uh, set of clothes say about Jesus and about the gospel? That's usually not the way we think about it, and yet that's the way we're encouraged to think about it, actually. True biblical modesty is humility of the heart, first and foremost, then something that is expressed, that humility is expressed on the outside. Furthermore, Paul makes it very clear. What makes a godly woman attractive, first and foremost? After her godly heart, it's her good works, verse 10. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. That's what you should adorn yourself with. Why? Because, as we know, a Christian's good works flow from their regenerated heart. Their godly actions flow from their godly new nature that he has given them. So what applications can we draw from what we've seen thus far? Well, let's consider three. First of all, notice that Paul doesn't say this, and if you read the rest of the passage, he doesn't immediately join the ranks of the modesty patrol. He doesn't establish some external set of rules. He didn't tell the women in Ephesus that the necklines of their togas needed to cover their clavicles. He didn't say that their hemlines needed to have a specific number of hand breaths from their ankles, otherwise it's now immodest. He didn't specify how many braids or how much gold or how many pearls a modest woman could or couldn't wear. He didn't say if you wear one earring, that's okay, but two or three, that's ungodly. He doesn't start by just throwing out a bunch of subjective rules. 
And this should lead us, too, to a proper caution. There are specific applications to be drawn from passages such as this, and we will make most of those specific applications next week. But all such applications ultimately must first flow from the heart. You can tell a person, especially, let's say, a young lady growing up in a Christian home, you could raise her and tell her, do this, don't do this, wear this, don't wear this, and they may obey it, and they may carry that on for the rest of their life. But if the heart has never been affected, then we've completely missed the point. Paul took the discussion to a far deeper and more profound level. The Bible sets a standard for godly dress that far surpasses a mere adherence to a set of external rules. It promotes the type of godliness that flows from the inside out. True godliness, not just the appearance of godliness. And so this brings us to a question before the next application. What statement do your external clothing choices make about your heart? What, what, does your, what do your external choices say about your heart? How you choose to present yourself, not just in church, but just in general. What does it say about your heart and who you follow and, and who's Lord of your life? That's an important consideration. Secondly, we're told in Proverbs 4.18 something profound, and it's stated throughout Scripture. The path of the righteous, it says is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. What that means is that there is a dimension of life that can grow richer and fuller even as our outer body is decaying. Your character can continue to develop and grow long after your physical body has begun to deteriorate. Because unfortunately, the fact of the matter is, the moment you're born, you begin to deteriorate your body begins to break down. But godly character is not the same. The fact is, if we devote our time and energy to staying fit and trim and glamorous and youthful looking and following the latest fads and and emphasizing the externals, we may achieve those objectives, at least for a while. But the day will come, if we are a Christian, where we will regret having neglected our character having neglected to cultivate that inner beauty, that character, and that radiance that is pleasing to God forever. Because after all, even if you are an exception to the rule, and you can emphasize the external, you can stay fit and trim, how long in this life can you work on your physical appearance and keep it at tip-top shape? Maybe 50, 60 years? But how long will you live as a Christian? forever, through eternity. And your godly character will have ripple effects. Your godly character now, I should say, in its growth and development through your sanctification, it will have ripple effects throughout eternity that your physical body will not. When you and I get to heaven, no one, no angel, no fellow glorified Christian, no saint of the past is ever going to come up to you and ask you, oh, Did you follow this fashion trend or this one? What did you think about this hairstyle? Hey, how many push-ups could you do? How often would you go to the gym? Nobody will care about that. We will be in new glorified bodies. So the truth is that 
we should spend the most amount of time on what will last the longest and is most precious. Now, we're not saying don't spend any time on the externals, all right? The Bible clearly says you should spend some time on that. But it's saying put the emphasis where the emphasis should be, which is on the internals. Thirdly, Nancy Lee DeMoss has given uh, six helpful explanations of blessings that come from modesty, from a godly modesty. These can apply to men and women, although she specifically targets them to women. But just hear them and apply them accordingly. She says, here are six blessed results of modesty. First of all, peace. You'll know that you're being obedient to God if you're seeking to please him, first and foremost, with how you look on the outside. Secondly, power. You'll be, you'll be free from enslavement to fashion and fads and other people's opinion. Why? Because you're seeking to please God, first and foremost. Thirdly, you'll be protected up to a point. That is, you'll be guarded from the wrong kind of attention from the wrong kind of people. Now, to be fair, dressing modestly doesn't guarantee that the wrong kind of people will never give you the wrong type of attention. But it certainly can help. Fourthly, purity. You'll attract the right kind of attention more often from the right kind of people. Fifthly, privilege. You'll experience greater freedom in your marriage relationship because your body will be reserved exclusively for your spouse. And sixthly, praise. You'll be valued appropriately for your spiritual heart qualities more than for your physical characteristics. As Proverbs 31, verse 30 says, a woman that fears the Lord, that's a virtuous woman, she shall be praised, and it's right to do so. In fact, it says her husband delights in her. That is, not only does he take great joy in her and have great respect for her and appreciation for her, but the, that part of that delight is extolling her publicly to others and praising her publicly because of her virtuous heart. So a few questions in closing. Have you been clothed, first of all, in the righteousness of Christ? Romans 13, 14. If you've never become a Christian, then that's where it needs to start. You need to be clothed in his righteousness that he provides for us on the cross through repenting of your sin and turning to him. Secondly, is your clothing as a Christian and your external adornment consistent with God's created purpose for clothing? And what does your external appearance communicate about your heart? And finally, how are you choosing to express gospel eternal truth through your external appearance. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you will use these texts and these considerations in our hearts and lives. May we address first and foremost the heart, for it is the most important. I pray that each of us, old and young, men and women, married, unmarried, that each of us would consider our own hearts before you. First and foremost, to see if we're actually in the faith and a Christian and have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And if we have, that we would consider the godly character you're trying to form in us. And that we would start there and pray for the right, humble heart attitude that is submitted to you and your truth. For we know if that part is healthy and working as it should, it will inevitably show itself on the outside. We pray all this in your name. Amen.